Hello, anybody there? Yes. Hello, oh, hello. There Jennifer you are. Lang. Good morning or good evening. Good evening. Good morning to you. So nice to meet you. Hey, Jennifer. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm uh, super excited to get to chat today. So uh, if, if I may ask here to get the ball rolling, where are you at these days? So thank you for having me, first of all. Um, and I am currently in what's called the heart of Tel Aviv in Israel. Okay, wonderful. And uh, you mentioned something interesting in your bio, which is that you are a hybrid of a couple of different uh, cultural mile markers here. Would you be able to elaborate a little bit what it means to be an American-French-Israeli hybrid, just so that we can kind of set the stage? American by birth, born in the San Francisco Bay Area, Berkeley to be exact. Very proud of that. French by marriage, but um, my mom put me in a French class when I was six. So I was fluent before I met my husband and, and dreaming of meeting a single French eligible Frenchman. So he fit that. <laughs> and Jewish by immigration, where I had never intended to land, but where we met and I stayed. Mm. So uh, you've been there quite a bit then, it seems, uh, a little while? You would think that. So we met 30, 1989, what's the math? 34 years ago. We got married a year and a half later, so we're coming up on our 33rd wedding anniversary. Oh, but like many people in this, this tiny, tiny country, both a, a completely Israeli couple and the international mix, whether it's an interna a foreigner and an Israeli or like us, two foreigners in Israel, we left. Mm. And we, were, um, we left for two years, but it turned into 16. But just to make it complicated, year nine, no, year 12, we came back for a year with our kids. Mm. We left with one baby in 1994, and we came back with three school-age kids in 2007 for a year that basically divided our family. Oh, that's fascinating. And you have ventured into this world of, of just sort of feeling comfortable with, with cultural shifts and, and pivoting. It seems to come easily to you. Is that something that you had since you were younger? No, I think I've had to grow up. No. <laughs> um, I mean, I grew up with two very American, two born in California parents. Never, neither of them speak another, they're still alive. Neither of them speak another language. But my mom put me into this French class when I was six. It was a pilot program and I stayed. Mm. I stayed um, most of elementary school. I took it through middle school. I took it through high school. I took it in college. I went junior year abroad to Paris. And I would say that's where I really encountered like what it is to, to hear another tongue, you know, all the time around you and to have to try to, figure it out. I was mute for about four months because I was working on it in my brain. My, my host mother spoke incredibly quickly. I, you know, we did a lot of pantomiming. Uh, I wanted immersion, so I chose to live with a host family and not with my peers in like a dorm building, but it was hard. It yeah, was work. I can imagine that, but uh, it seemed like that taught you a very valuable lesson in terms of adapting and really getting uh, to find yeah. your footing in, in a different culture. But if we could backtrack for a moment and go back to San Francisco Bay Area and sort of what that upbringing was like, if you could elaborate a little bit more, do you remember when writing made its way into your life? Was it that early on or, or 
What was it like in terms of your childhood back then? So I had a, um, I was, I was raised in a small enclave surrounded by Oakland on all sides. It's called Piedmont. And I used to be very ashamed of that because it's got a reputation for being, you know, upper middle class and, um, it's definitely snotty. I don't, I can't speak of today, but it was very, very clicky, mm. very small. Um, we were raised as reform Jews in a very, very non-Jewish area. So we were going against the grain from as early as I can remember. Mm. Um, whether it was missing school on the major holidays, Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, or Yom Kippur, the day of fasting and repentance, didn't matter how many times I told my teachers ahead of time that I had this holiday and I was going to miss a test. Like there was every year there was a test I was missing. Um, and it didn't matter. My, my dad put his foot down and said, like, we go to temple. And we also went to Israel. So we did two things very different from everyone around. Mm. Um, we were not religious. It wasn't a God-based household. It was a Jewish culture-based household. So it's really hard for someone to understand that if they didn't grow up with it. Um, strong Jewish identity with grandparents born in Eastern Europe who immigrated in the early 1900s, fleeing anti-Semitism, fleeing famine, fleeing poverty, fleeing, fleeing the Tsar of Russia, really. So that, the, the, whether it was Yiddish words, their, their common language was Yiddish, if you know what that is. Mm -hmm. And um, they were trying to assimilate and raise two children, my aunt and my three children, my aunt and my dad, and um, passed down the holidays and everything. But it wasn't a house where we kept kosher or we kept the Sabbath. It wasn't that. Um, we went, I went to football games Friday night, school dances, uh, out on Saturday. It wasn't, it wasn't a temple-based. It was just on those major holidays. But, but now to the, where the writing came in, um, my mom used to take me to the library, the public library. And I have really strong memories of that, of the, you know, wooden floors and the sound of the creak of the stairs and her shushing me if I tried to talk <laughs> and the, the Laura Ingalls Wilder and Judy Bloom and Beverly Cleary. And like, I have very, very strong, beautiful memories of, Going to library with my mom. I wasn't necessarily writing, but I was always reading. I had a book all the time. Yeah. You appreciate it. Yeah. 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 And so when does writing make its way into your life proper when you feel like you were exploring a memoir form or fiction or, you know, some of these other um, forms? So all of the all of the questions you've asked before are going to come together in the weirdest way right now. Writing did not make its way in high school. I hated writing papers. I didn't understand the grammar rules. I cried when I had to ask my mom for help and she would berate me saying, what's your problem? Why can't you understand these grammar rules? I needed help writing essays to get into college. I actually ended up in a great college, but like, and I kind of know how I wasn't in the general studies school. I was in some other school. It was easier to get into. I think looking back, um, but I could not write mm -hmm. and so much so <laughs> my freshman year of college, I think I failed one of my first papers because of plagiarism, which I didn't even know what it meant. Oh no! <laughs> I was called out on plagiarizing. Yeah. 
Oh my goodness. Um, so, so I, so I kind of learned the hard way and the hard way happened ironically while living in France. So I gained enough fluency during my junior year that I, I felt like I was just getting it. And then I left and I came back to the States for my senior year of college, but I really didn't want to be there. It was Ronald Reagan and it was yuppie and it was mm. a very conservative way of living. You had to dress a certain way and look for a certain job. Arthur Anderson Consulting, I didn't want any of that. I wanted Paris. I wanted the colorful, non-matching suit people wore. <laughs> and I started to look at how to get abroad. And so I applied to the Peace Corps. I looked at teaching English in Japan. I applied to a program in Israel. And then a young woman, a year older than me in high school, who I ran into while biking through Bruges, Belgium. <laughs> we recognized each other. Two, we were two of like the Jews of like a, in a non-Jewish city. We recognized each other. We stopped. We talked. She was a bilingual assistant at an organization called the World Jewish Congress in Paris on the Champs-Élysées. And I was like, how did you get that? So her dad had a connection. Mm. She got the job. That was it. We, we biked. I went back to college. I get a phone call my, I think my last um, semester at school from this woman who called her parents in Piedmont, who called my parents in Piedmont, who call, who, and then she called me. She got my phone number from my parents, asking me, telling me she was leaving her job. Did I want it? Wow. Like when someone says something falls in your lap, this fell in my lap. <laughs> I'm, I'm answering your question. It's just a really roundabout yeah, answer. No, and I love it. I love the, the I'm, background. I'm getting here. there. I'm getting there. Yeah. And so, and, and the whole thing was, is that the boss wasn't going to hire me. I had to come for the interview. Was I coming anyhow? And on the phone, and for the moment, I said, yes, I'm coming. And I had a really close French friend, and we flew together. We, she was in the States. She was an au pair. We flew together. We, I lived with her and her mom until I found an apartment. But really what happened was, is that first week in Paris, I got the job. But what happened? I learned how to write in English as I mastered French. Mm. I, I understood how to speak properly. There, are, there is no way in French to end a sentence with a preposition. So who did you go to the dance with? We would say in English. Mm -hmm. And we often write like that, even though it's not really correct to write like that. But I couldn't understand with whom. I didn't understand how to flip it <laughs> when I was in high school and college. And in French, you can't actually say it. It's impossible grammatically. And I understood as I was immersing and reading and translating from French to English, I, I got it. Mm. And I started writing in my job in Paris as a college graduate. Oh, that's remarkable. And there's something beautiful about you having to go to another culture to understand your native tongue in so many, in so many respects. But I feel like this kind of sets the stage for where you are now, which is you running the Israel Writer Studio. And I feel like there's there's a, such a beautiful journey there in between when you first understood what the assignment was in so many words and and now taking that practice and that knowledge that you picked mm -hmm. up along the way and sharing it with others. Can you tell me a bit about how you landed in that role of Israel Writer Studio or how you brought that about and what that means to you. And then maybe we can talk about the books, of course, but, you know, just to kind of keep setting the stage. Sure. Um, so I started writing back in my early 20s and then I came to Israel and I got a job in the public affairs department of a university called the Technion. It's kind of like the MIT of Israel. 
and there I was writing more and doing editing and layout. And then I was also a copy editor for a journal of Jewish history at a different press in English. Everything was in English here. Then we went, we left, we went back to Paris. I was writing for a, like a travel magazine. Um, and then we moved to California and I took, um, I got a job in the marketing department of a Jewish nonprofit where I was writing, but also I was taking classes outside of work and I was taking copy editing classes and I had mm -hmm. freelance gigs. And then um, after I had my second child and it didn't make sense for me to go back to work financially, I was complaining to a girlfriend that I was actually really bored at home. And um, my girlfriend had just hopped on board with a website. A new, this was 1997, San, Oakland, California, San Francisco, California. It was the dawning of the WWW, the World Wide Web, as we called it when we dialed up AOL. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how old you are. Oh, yeah. You have I, any, I recall. Yeah. 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 And I was brought on board to edit and write for this website called Baby Center. So mm. while I was going through pregnancies and having babies and, and rearing children, I was writing about it. And it was beautiful. And then it just went from there. So from there I jumped, I was doing a lot of website writing. It was called, we were called content writers. And then I jumped into print because I wanted to see my bio. And so I worked, I wrote for magazines like Parenting and Parents. I don't even know what's around anymore. Scholastic. Um, okay, so the question. Okay, so then in 2008, Bernie Madoff took the economy down. I, we were living in Israel for this year. And two of the magazines who were my main bread and butter with freelance writing, the editors-in-chief walked away. Both. Both women saying, I'm done. Wow. One, one, one her mag she folded her magazine. She couldn't even pay me my last assignment. And the other one just said, like, I just, I can't do this anymore. And when they walked, I walked. Mm -hmm. So I had been freelancing for, I guess, 11 years. And... Um, I, and I walked and I spent a year, 2008 into 2009, thinking about, because I was already taking creative writing classes then, how can I call myself a writer if I'm not being paid to write? That was a big conundrum. And I realized I could teach. I realized I could take the best of everything I had gotten over the years and put it into a curriculum that I would have wanted when I had just started on this journey. Mm. And I pitched two... I pitched five adult schools in the area where we were living in New York, and two of them hired me. And I started teaching, teaching memoir classes um, in adult schools and loved it. Mm. And I was also already teaching yoga, so I was already a teacher, and it came naturally. It didn't, yeah. it seemed to, I seemed to realize, you know, in my early 40s that it didn't matter what I was teaching, that I was a teacher. And we moved to Israel a couple years into that, and I started teaching. Um, through an organization, but you have to remember I'm in a non-English speaking country, so it wasn't a given to teach here. Mm -hmm. And then I went to school and did an MFA, and then I had the confidence to say, okay, I'm opening up my a thing, and that is Israel Writer Studio. Oh man, what a journey that must have been. And I want to keep asking you more about the the convergence of yoga and, and the creative pursuit, because I think there's something very inherent there about about being open and being able to channel something that's a little bit deeper than the surface but uh we'll we'll table that for a moment because i want to ask you about your latest work which is places we left behind from vine leaves press is that correct yeah 
Can, can you tell me a bit about when this makes its way into the picture and, and how you go about finding this memoir? So it's, it's a journey. I mean, it is so not straight. It is so, it's not circular. It's not straight. It's just messy. So I'm going to just show um, or say a few books that have, you know, come into my life at different points and that started getting me on this journey to write in the form that I wrote, which is very unconventional. And I'll talk a little bit about that. So the first one is Danny Shapiro's Devotion. And I went in 2011 um, before leaving New York for our final move to Israel. I went to hear her at um, uh, actually a yoga retreat place in the Berkshire Mountains in Massachusetts called Kripalo. She did a weekend, a memoir weekend. Mm. So I was already like, you know, seven years into taking different memoir and creative nonfiction classes, didn't have my MFA yet, pretty much had the idea that I had a book in me, but I really wasn't quite sure what it was. And her book is 102 small chapters of her journey trying to answer what does she believe? What's her faith? Then I went into grad school and one of the books we read as a school, whether we were fiction, poet, nonfiction, was Alison Bechdel's Fun Home. It's a tragic comic, graphic, graphic memoir, and that rocked my world. And then I started reading more graphic comics. Then this incredible woman had a post, go, uh, a column go viral in the New York Times while I was teaching already Israel Writer Studio. Her name is Amy Krauss Rosenthal. She's no longer with us. She died, I think, in her 40s. Um, leaving behind a husband and three children, and she wrote a column that was all about, I think you, you, you might want to marry my husband, I think it was called, in the New York Times. And it was circulating. Uh, everyone was reading it and crying. And the writing was so beautiful, and it was so honest. And it basically brought me down a rabbit hole to understand who Amy Kraft Rosenthal was and what her writing was. And this is a, like a little memoir um, each chapter is words with the, going with the alphabet and there's different graphics and design elements and it is so creative. It's called Encyclopedia of an Ordinary Life. Then, sorry, the questions, the answers are long. Then after, then after my MFA, I was in Manhattan for a, a conference and I heard Nora Krug who wrote an illustrated memoir called Belonging mm. and this rocked my world. This is every page is different and beautiful. She's, a, she's an illustrated, illustrator before she's a writer, and she's German. Mm. And she wrote it in English, and it is her reckoning with her German um, roots. Mm-hmm. And then the last one, these are not in the order of how they came into the world. This is the order of how I, they came into my life. And the last one I read, Heating and Cooling, 52 Micro Memoirs by Beth Ann Fenley, who's a poet. Um, tiny little, you could call them vignettes, prose about life. Mm. So I wrote a 62,000 word long, what's it called? Overwritten, long-winded, uninteresting, flat manuscript of a memoir as I was nearing the end of my MFA. I hired an editor. I got edits. I got seven pages of comments. And it didn't matter what she said. I didn't like my manuscript. I didn't like the writing. Mm. And the big thing is when you get comments back like that, it's like, put it away. Read everything, think about it, and then put it away. And I put it away. 
And while it was away, I started taking classes online because I was in Israel with a woman named Kathy Fish. Mm. And she teaches flash, flash fiction. But really, flash, it doesn't matter fiction or nonfiction, flash. And I started to write every, it was two weeks, five days a week, so 10 sessions. We were in a group. It wasn't, it was asynchronous and no, no Zoom, no faces. And we were reading each other's work and giving feedback. And everything I wrote was about my life in Israel. And the feedback was all about, like, you, I hope you're writing a memoir about your life in Israel. It's fascinating. So, like, the seeds were being planted. Then um, the manuscript that I had that was 65,000 words was about my marriage. And it started when I met, it, it was also about childhood, but it started and, and how I grew up very Jewish, strong Jewish identity in a non-Jewish place. Um, but it really started where I met my husband and then it ended 30 years later. And it was just too long and it didn't have a tight focus. It didn't have a, a tight narrative arc. Um, but so it, it was out there. It, all of these, a lot of the pieces of what became Places We Left Behind were, were written. Mm -hmm. So all to say, there was a book, a memoir that came out called H is for Hawk. I think Helen McDonald is, is the name. McDonald, maybe? British. Um, a memoir of loss. And a British journal, a literary journal, did a call for stories using the, the letters of the alphabet. And when I saw it, it was J. J is for dot, 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 300 words max. So this was while I was taking these classes on writing short, flash, and I knew the word I wanted, and I went straight into my 65,000 word document, and I found it. Thank you to find. <laughs> Jur jury. Jury was the word. How my husband and I were sitting two days after our 20th wedding anniversary in New York, where we were living, debating about coming back to Israel, debating about staying together. And we were deliberating like a jury of two, hmm. which ironically the word jury didn't make it into the final manuscript, but it's elsewhere. And I then kept going. The next month was K and I knew exactly what word I wanted and I found it. And then L and then I went back to A on my own and B and C. And I ended up with this completely different manuscript because everything was 300 words max. Oh, that's so I, lovely. I chopped. I chopped from 900 words and 1,000 words and 1,200 words to under 300. And my prose was, wowed me. Hmm. So much tighter. So it's, it started, the, the big transition to get to this book started there. Hmm. And so the, do you feel like, like there was a leap? Uh, and it's hard to quantify like what sort of eureka moment had the greatest impact on the manuscript as we see it now. but. The, uh, I imagine that there was a visual component that really helped along in terms of, of graphic novels sort of inspiring you as well. Can you elaborate a little bit on how that visual aspect uh, affected the way that you went about writing this? So I think the first thing that I have to say is like, I'm not an artist. I'm not, I'm not visual. I think I'm more auditory. So that's, that's a, my starting point here. Mm -hmm. um, I... I, I think I was feeling that the words weren't doing enough sometimes, and so I was searching for a, another way to say things. But also, I, if there's something I have a pet peeve about in a book, I can read a great story, but if the author repeats information all the time, doesn't understand, the, doesn't give the reader enough credit to remember, 
from chapter to chapter details. Mm-hmm. I like I, I lose interest in the book. Like it becomes a badly written book to me. Mm. And so a couple of things. I felt like I was being really repetitive with what I was trying to say and I was trying to figure out how to say things differently to avoid the repetition. And I really like writers who are like self-deprecating and snarky and I'm not really like that. I'm not I'm not so sarcastic, I'm not snarky, but I was I was like kind of yearning for a little bit of that. Mm. And so the way I ended up using the visual elements in my book enabled me to have a little snark. I have some snark in the footnote. <laughs> I have a little voice that's like, you know. Did it feel like an alter ego kind of, uh, you know, that, that went against you in some way? Kind of. It freed me. Mm-hmm. It really freed me. Um, it, it really freed me. Yeah. So what kind of process did you go through while editing this new version, the new iteration of the manuscript did you feel like you had to go at it again from the ground up and get an editor to really walk you through that again or did you have a bit more confidence in what you had by the time you sort of wrapped up a new manuscript i'm so happy to say i had the confidence to do it on my own (laughs) 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 i i i think i knew i was on to something so after writing after after having places we left behind in a different version where it was just prose. I, and I still, I, I felt that, like I, I felt that maybe there was something lacking, but I didn't know what it was. I started to pay attention to what's called call for submissions for like chapbooks, for example. My, my book is exceptionally short. It's 13,000 words, like really short. So I was treating it as a chapbook. That's not how it ended up being, um, how it's being released. It's a book. But I, I was answering calls for chapbooks. And I was seeing this word in this calls for submissions, which was experimental, experimental prose. And I was like, what is that? I didn't, I I had no clue. Hmm. But I remembered feedback I'd gotten along the way with my original manuscript, which was I'd had a pro-con list. And someone said, I'd love to see that list. I wish you had that list. And then I realized I had a chapter about Philippe and I, my husband and I, zigzagging through the old city in Jerusalem to get from one gate to the Western Wall. And I laid my text out on the page like a zigzag to mirror the content. Mm. And I realized that like there was something to it. I'm not a poet. So I don't know about enjambment and stanzas and not, not my lingo. But I was, I was seeing something that was really interesting. And um, it started there. Mm. And it just kept going. Yeah. This this kind of leaves me thinking of the process of distillation, how everyone arrives at it in a completely different way. But for you, how does that paint a picture of your life? Because we're talking about still huge swaths of time in your personal history that are now distilled into these very concise, very succinct moments on paper. What What feeling are you left with? As you look at this manuscript now and, and look at what actually remains from that massive previous iteration of work, what do you see out of this? What, what's the, the feeling that, it, that you're left with after such distillation? Um, so I'm very, I like sparse, I like clean, I like not cluttery, like it, it's very much like a, a mirror of who I am. Mm-hmm. I get rid of things easily. Um, 
I like clean space. <laughs> so there's that aspect. Like there's no connective tissue from chapter to chapter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but so the thing is, is a lot of the, the the first manuscript is still alive in a second book that comes out in a year called mm. Landed, a okay. yogi's memoir in pieces and poses. So I didn't know that I had two books in me. I didn't realize it. It it didn't happen in a conscious way. Landed, the second book, was what I was really working on and trying to place when this, when I signed for this. Mm. When when a friend came to me saying, I'm looking at chapbook submissions, you should look at your body of work that you have, you should try to think if you can link some essays together by theme, I think you should enter contests. So I was already like, already in the submission process for Landed, getting a lot of rejection, when I went back to work on places. Uh, I see. And realized, and realized I had two separate stories going on. Okay. So how does the divergence occur? And I got to say, Landed, A Yogi's Memoir in Pieces and Poses is a great title. I think it, it kind of playfully marries those two ideas uh, of your life, which is uh, very, uh, very taken with that title. That one's coming out next year, right? 2024? Yeah. 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 So tell me about how these two books, these two manuscripts, I don't want to say counteract or, or counterbalance each other, but how do they speak to one another? Because they seem to be a continuation or extrapolations yeah. of, of the similar journey. So um, two readers, two women, two writer friends who I, you know, really, one, one was actually my mentor and one was a writer friend, both said something to me with the, when I had the longer manuscript that they had read saying, I think you're asking the wrong question. And a memoir, was, memoir is all about asking a question. What, what is the question? And when my second friend said that to me, I was like, okay, I'm clearly up, you know, going up the wrong tree. Like, what is the problem? And I realized that I shouldn't be focusing so much on my marriage as the journey as much as my journey. And what was my journey? Because I had definitely taken a journey. And my journey started when we landed in Israel in August of 2011. Oh, with, wow. um, with, with two teenage daughters and our son who was joining the Israeli army. And that's wow. what triggered, catapulted our move back to the country. And my journey was I, on and off the yoga mat, really trying to make peace with this country. Um, I, I felt ambivalent. I had wrestled. I felt like it brought, it was home, a second home to me, but it brought out the worst in me often. I often cried, lots of crying jags. Um, I, I wondered if I was depressed, but I never felt like someone who was depressed. So it really did something to me. Mm. Got under my skin. Yeah. Got under my skin. Um, and so I realized that the manuscript that I needed to focus on, I put the 65,000 words away, starting way back in 1989, and I started in August 2011, and I wrote from there my first seven years in Israel, mm. which is super meaningful on many levels. Seven in Judaism is meaningful. Seven in yoga is meaningful. Like for example, the seven chakras. And we in our marriage had never lived longer than six years in any one place. Wow. It was the first time we stayed and something happened in the staying in, in the rooting. Something happened when we really stayed in this country and started to make roots in a way that we never had. We'd been searching for home all those prior years. So I ended up with these two different books where, so Landed is about my journey on and off the mat, making peace with this place. But the first book, 
which came, the, the writing, the, the experimental and all that that came later was, is about my marriage, about the two of us looking for home. Because my husband always wanted, he's French, but he always wanted to live in Israel. So he was the one, the driving force back, but it was our son's decision to come and do the army that catapulted us into the decision making. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's so many powerful moments that you have here in in this answer in particular. The idea of asking the right question, just to begin with, it feels so common sense, but not something that I naturally gravitate to in terms of beginning that kind of uh, memoir journey. But in terms of, of spirituality, and I hope to not pry here, it's just something that's very dear to my heart. I, I have a complicated relationship with faith, and I'm always taken with this idea that you can have a kind of spirituality and and a kind of practice that informs your life for the better and and you and helps you along rather than what we are normally seeing online or or you know in a lot of different different mediums that that faith is not necessarily a good thing i mean i i go back and forth on this but for you in terms of spirituality and being in in such a place with with such hallowed history and bringing a lot of that personally culturally as well do you feel like you have a form of spirituality that goes beyond i mean i don't mean to uncouple it from cultural importance but but what does your spirituality look like and does that inform how you're writing do, do you feel like there there's a kind of of message that is coming down or is that not how you think about the process at all and mostly i'm curious you know in terms of of belief you know uh because i don't know mm-hmm. what the answer is i'm i'm very conflicted yeah. in many ways well, i'm i'm with you i'm just as conflicted <laughs> so i married i married someone for whom it's very very clear but um i think when you grow up the way i did which is again without the belief in god God's name was only mentioned when my mom dropped something in the kitchen and she'd scream, God damn it, like <laughs> through the whole house. Like that was it. I, I, I think when you don't grow up with a, with a clear belief, um, you definitely can't live this. Yeah, we haven't even talked about what the battle has been in, in, in the marriage, which is I married a man who grew up in Europe with tradition, a traditional Jew. And a traditional Jew in Europe for many Europeans means keeping kosher, separating milk and meat in, in the meals, um, maybe eating out, eating in a non-kosher restaurant, but never eating non-kosher meat and never eating shellfish. So that's mm. how he grew up. Um, it means that he went to synagogue every Friday night with his dad and his brother, and they walked because it was in their little village. And it, they went to synagogue on Saturday morning as well which is the Sabbath from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And then it meant dinner at home Friday night, saying the prayers um, over the wine and over the bread, the challah. And um, then on Saturday afternoon, he'd meet his school friends, none of whom were Jewish, and go and ride bikes and be mischievous boys. So we both went to public school. He and I both went to public school. We both went to what's called Hebrew school. We both went to Jewish summer camp. We both went to Zionist pro-Israel Jewish summer camps, but I did not grow up with all of that tradition at all. Mm. And when he moved to Israel, we were both 23, when he moved to Israel about six months before I met him, he decided to take that tradition and to up it and to 
observe the Sabbath in the way that it's supposed to be observed. Mm. So he doesn't drive a car from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. He doesn't get into transportation. He doesn't turn on his computer, his phone. He reads on a Kindle. He does do that. He doesn't spend money. All of these things that for me are like, pardon my friend, WTF. <laughs> like, why? But I say that because I didn't grow up with the belief. Mm-hmm. He did. And, and that is the bottom line difference. Mm. When, and so I've wrestled with it, and he asked me to do it his way. We raised kids that way yeah. in America. And like, I, I didn't like raising my kids like this. I, I didn't believe any of it. Mm-hmm. So it was so, it was such a battle for me to toe the line. Yeah. Right? I didn't care if I got in a car on Friday night or Saturday. I didn't care if I had ice cream after having a hamburger. I, I, I just didn't care because I don't have the belief. Mm-hmm. So I'm 58 next week and still the, the wrestle is less. I would say I'm much more at ease to say I'm a secular Jew. I live in a very um, meaningful place and a conflicted place and a controversial place. And religion is kind of inevitable. It's hard to avoid here because the whole calendar is wrapped around the Jewish holidays. Um, and on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, I go to the movies with girlfriends. Mm-hmm. That's where I've come to. I do not step foot in the synagogue. I don't feel anything. I feel a lot more on my yoga mat or standing at the edge of the Mediterranean than I do in a synagogue. I feel nothing in a synagogue at this point. Mm-hmm. Man, yeah, that's, that's, there's so much to parse through there. And I'm so grateful for your honesty because it, it really provides a sense of relief in, in terms of being okay with the ambivalence of this whole thing and, and really mm-hmm. embracing that in a way, because it seems like there's a lot of that discussion and a lot of that wrangling in the work itself. So for mm-hmm. anyone who's kind of thinking about these questions, I think it, it would be prudent to go check out the books because I, I'm sure that there's a lot of that in it as well. Um, but I, I have a couple more questions to be mindful of your time, but I'm I'm so thrilled that we get to do this. Um, I want to ask you about yoga for a moment. If you could share a little bit about how that made its way into your life. And of course, where do you stand on on yoga as a tool for people who are looking to improve their quality of life for the creative pursuit and all its facets? What does it give you as a human being? Big answer. Um, yeah, yeah. I first stepped onto a yoga mat in early, early September 1995, about a week after my birthday. I was 30 years old. I had a baby, a two-year-old. We had just moved to Oakland, California, so we were living down the road from my parents after a year in Paris. So we were in Israel for five years. Our son is born there, and then we went to Paris for a year for my husband's MBA, and then we went to California for my soul my psyche and we were there for a year but it turned into six and it was the there was political unrest in Israel I wasn't I wasn't able to come back and um, a girlfriend an American friend of mine in Israel before we had left had been very very involved in yoga in back in New York and so I kind of knew a little bit about it from her and she said to me if you ever get a chance to go to class you should so moved to California saw a yoga studio about a half a mile from my home, went to a class. Mm. And I went to a class on a Wednesday morning. Um, and I kind of will never forget, it was packed with people from 9 to 11 in the morning. 
uh, everyone had the same mat because back in those days there was only one kind of mat <laughs> and everyone was whispering about the teacher wondering if he would be there his name was Rodney Rod Rodney he if that means that name means anything to you he's pretty nationally known mm. and um, in walks this you know beautiful man who looked like he'd been a dancer or a gymnast and um, I get teary talked about rooting down into the earth, planting your feet, spreading your toes, how to find parallel and how to anchor yourself. And I was moved by the words mm. because I had been moving for so many years. After growing up very, very rooted, I end up very, very unrooted and shaky. Shaky in my marriage, shaky with religion, shaky on the planet. Didn't know where home was. Lived with a man who did not want to be in America. I knew that. And um, every, and I just kept going back to class because those words, his, it was like song lyrics to me. Mm. And it made me, it gave me visceral, there were the poses going on, which I liked, but yeah. like, you know, but it was this language that just, yeah. you know, brought me, brought me in. Um, and I stayed. I went once a week for many years. It was all I could do because I was working part-time and I was juggling childcare and I was, you know, commuting and it wasn't so easy. And um, I went once a week for the first six years and it was only after leaving California, moving to White Plains, New York, leaving a yoga studio on every, in every neighborhood in Northern California to move to New York where there was one, and I had to drive 20 minutes to get to it, to realize what I had left behind, mm -hmm. what I had had and yeah. taken for granted, and, and who Rodney was. I only really understood who he was when I got to New York. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the teachers and the studio where I was going were wowed by my first teacher. And, um, yeah. That seems like such a gift to receive at, at such a pivotal time when you're going through so many changes. And especially as a parent, I feel like there's so many things that turn your world upside down when you become a parent that I can't imagine that as well as the cultural upheaval that you seem to have experienced. And I want to ask you about parenting in particular and how raising multicultural children uh, with awareness, with, with understanding. Can you explain a little bit about what that evolution has been like to experience watching your kids grow from one country to another and, and living in these kinds of multicultural environments. And um, I, I guess I, I go for emotional reactions, but just kind of what your experience has been like uh, with that process as a, as a parent. So, I mean, I think, you know, I, I wanted to be French. I wanted everyone to think I was French. I would walk around Paris and drape the scarves and just all I wanted was for people to mistake me for French, but I have an American head, so that didn't happen. And an American laugh, and American white teeth, and it just never happened. But I got, I got it in a way because we raised our kids, each speaking our mother tongues to them. We were very committed to raising bilingual children because we wanted them to have a relationship with their French grandparents. We had French nursery rhymes in the house. We had French children's books. We had French videos. Like, you know, Sunday morning, we would get up and watch Babar. Um, and, and we spoke in Fringlish between us because we could, because we each understood each other's language. And all to say, my kids today are turning 30, 26, and 24. They 
fluency I've understood now is you can break it down. There's speaking, comprehension, reading, and writing. So they have 100% comprehension in French. They have fairly strong ability to speak, but a lot of grammar mistakes and like, you know, it drives me crazy because they just, <laughs> they didn't do what I did, which is immerse to really get it, um, all the nuances. So they make a lot of mistakes and they have missing vocabulary. So they stick the English word into the beautiful French sentence and massacres <laughs> the sentence. And then they really can't read and they really can't write. So fluency is a funny thing. So like, are my kids bilingual? Kind of. They, they, I would say probably for all three of them, the Hebrew is stronger than the French in a way mm. because we dumped them into Israeli public schools when they were 14, 10, and 8. So they sank or swam. And then we came back when, when my girls were um, 12 and 14. And so they did high school and um, college and, well, kind of, and middle school here. And my son did the army here. And so they are quite fluent. Like, we're, we're the, um, what's it called, where I have to go to my kids for help in Hebrew? Oh, they're not born okay. here, so they're not first, they're not Language first, learners. Uh, there's an expression about when you're an immigrant, when you're a child of an immigrant, you're first. Oh, first generation sure. or? Uh, Something. Yeah. They're not born here. They weren't really raised here, but their Hebrew is, it outdoes mine. <laughs> I ask for help with apps. I ask for help, everything, everything. Oh, my goodness. I want to yeah. kind of wrap it up on a good note here, and I'm curious if you could share a few thoughts about what you hope people will take away from your upcoming work, whether it's places we left behind or landed. What are some things that we can, that we can expect and that you hope to share with, uh, with a reader? I'm going to stick to places. Um, voice. Not to lose your voice. Let yourself fall in love, but don't lose your voice. Hold on to yourself. Hold on to your identity. Your, to yourself because I let myself just fall and I think there's beauty to that but in the fall I, I lost myself and I lost my voice mm -hmm. and it took me 20 years to get it back so I, I that, man that's a beautiful note to end on I kind of don't want to ask you more questions because I think that one wraps it up so beautifully <laughs> but where can folks uh, find you on the uh, on the internet um, many places so as much as I loathe social media it is definitely the way I you know the way, the way it goes so on Facebook I'm Jen Lang writes and then on Instagram Jen Lang writes and then israelwriterstudio.com perfect lots of places yeah well Jennifer I want to thank you so much for your time for doing this, this has been such a pleasure and I want to really share my gratitude for sharing this love of language, for believing in the multicultural message of making making our communities better and to to look forward to a future that is that is full of possibility, but also for this wonderful work that you're doing with such honesty and and reminding us what the most important thing is, which is to hold on to that voice. I'm just very, very inspired by, by the work that you're doing. And it's really been a blast. So I hope that we get to chat again, maybe when Landed Thank comes around. So much. Yeah, because we just scratched the surface. There's, there's so much to cover. <laughs> and I feel like 10 minutes from now, I'm going to get so many more questions to ask you that uh, I, I'll definitely <laughs> want to want to continue this if you're ever willing to do that. Absolutely, Jamie. Thank you so much. 
totally been a pleasure. I hope you have a wonderful evening because I'm pretty sure it's evening over there and uh, I will be in yeah. touch real soon on the internet, okay? Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.